When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Bustin' Loose Baseball with Grant and Danny. Interviews, analytics, and analysis on everything baseball in the nation's capital. Bustin' Loose Baseball with Danny Ruye. I'm Grant Paulson. Producer Darius Dameron making us sound as good as he can. Lot to get into today as we wind down the stretch for the Nationals after a shutout loss at the hands of the Braves last night at Nats Park. Final few games here at Nationals Park, mercifully, this season for Washington. They've got the Braves for a couple more. The Phillies come to town for four, and then they hit the road to take on the Mets for three to end their season. And last night, Danny, the race to 100 losses was won by your Washington Nationals. Yeah, the Nats are intimately involved in the NL East and the playoff race at large, right? Playing the Braves, playing the Phillies, playing the Mets, teams that need these games. And I heard Dave Jagler on on the telecast, actually last night before the Braves game, say something that I actually thought was pretty profound. In, In so much as these teams that are playing against the Nationals, this is not a June... 15th game. This is not July 14th. This is like a, a, you know, these teams need these games as the Mets and and Braves are neck and neck. And the Phillies, of course, need to stockpile wins as well to to make the postseason. For these teams, it's a ramped up intensity, right? You're you're playing a little bit tournament style baseball, a little bit more, hey, I don't have to worry about tomorrow. I got to worry about winning this game right here, right now. And that intensity will be ramped up. The young players on the Nationals are not going to experience that for some time, presumably, hopefully within a couple of years. But still, this is their chance to kind of see what that's like. This is their chance to participate in hugely important major games, albeit for their opponents, but they can play a very important role. The losing has already happened. They've already secured their 100 losses, as you kind of alluded to. They're already in a bad place. They're already not going anywhere this year. But this is invaluable for guys like C.J. Abrams. This is important for guys like Luis Garcia, Lane Thomas, and uh, you know maybe some of the, the the younger members of the pitching staff, whether Josiah Gray or, um, or some of the others that, that get to throw in these kinds of games, to feel that kind of taste, even if it's secondhand, of intense upper-level baseball. And I think that's actually kind of a cool thing here in September. You could just be playing out the string against the A's or the Royals or you know the, the Pirates, somebody that has no chance just like you. But it's kind of cool. They're playing really good teams, and they're going to feel what this is like a little bit. And then you know you see what it looks like to maybe want to get there pretty soon. So I wanted to talk real quick about the Braves, oddly enough, before I get into some of the particulars from the Nationals in their loss in Game 1 of this series. Bryce Elder pitched for Atlanta which shouldn't mean a whole lot to Nats fans necessarily, but Bryce Elder right now is the number three prospect in the Braves organization. Uh, This is after they have now graduated this year. Michael Harris and Spencer Strider and Vaughn Grissom and all those guys are helping and making a big impact in the second half of this season at the major league level. Obviously, Strider is on the injured list, but he and Michael Harris will probably finish the top two vote-getters for the Rookie of the Year award in the National League, both with Atlanta. And it's just a a juxtaposition that I think is necessary to prove a point 
about the Braves versus the Nationals. And this is something we've talked about on the podcast from time to time this year. But just how much better Atlanta has been at drafting and developing and getting young players to the big league level and just how much success they've had in this regard over the last handful of years. You know, we talked a lot over the last several seasons about how hard it is to both win at the major league level, sustain winning, routinely be one of the best teams in your division, one of the best teams in your league, but also while doing that, walking and chewing gum, you know, spinning two plates, having a great system. When you're not drafting in the top five, in the top ten, when you are not able to prioritize player development and you're trading prospects to go get major leaguers to help you win, the idea that the thought is it's really, really hard to do that, to, to, to both be great at the big league level and to have a great system. There are a rare few teams that have been able to pull it off over the last couple of years. Nobody better, I think, through the years than the Dodgers and the Braves. And Atlanta is just an example that you don't have to be what I would consider to be one of the biggest markets. You don't have to play checkbook baseball and spend crazy amounts of money. You can win every single year at the major league level, and you can have an exceptional system, and you can draft really well, and you can develop really well, and you can have minor leaguers ready to graduate year in and year out. It takes a lot of smart people. It takes having a great process. It takes doing a lot of things well below the big league level. But it absolutely can be done. And I point this out today on Boston Loose Baseball after Bryce Elder threw a six-hit shutout and went the distance nine innings and six strikeouts in his start against the Nationals, throwing 106 pitches. Now, I understand that this Nats team is bad, right? 53-100, and 100. Lane Thomas is hitting leadoff, not a first-division everyday player. You know, we could run through the litany of, of why that lineup was not particularly good, but it really takes away just from the point that is that Bryce Elder is the latest of an assembly line of arms that the Braves graduate. And this guy this year at AAA Gwinnett in 17 starts, pitched in 105 innings and only allowed 93 hits while striking out 97 and had a 234 average against. Wasn't dominant, wasn't sexy, but he had a good AAA run. They called him up to the big leagues. He's got a 2.7 ERA and eight starts in the majors. And in 49 innings, he's allowed only 38 hits while striking out 42 batters. And he's got a big league average against of 215 in his rookie season here with Atlanta as their number three prospect. That sinker is good. It's a really good pitch. He's, uh, but my point is this, Danny. No, I know. Cade Cavalli, cool. We got him. We got one, right? And he got hurt, and hopefully he comes back early next season. They traded for Josiah Gray. Like, there's a chance they've got some good young pitching. Hopefully we see Mackenzie Gore soon. But they haven't had a Bryce Elder who they draft, who they develop, who they graduate, who comes to the big leagues and helps them. By the way, this guy was a fifth-round pick. 156 overall. Yeah, it's, 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 the, it's the nail we, we keep hammering with this organization. They haven't even yeah. gotten a first-round pick right. right. You know, we're, we're hoping it's Cade Cavalli. But the Braves just do this on Wednesday and then on Friday and then on Sunday. It's just what they do. They get out of bed, yawn, and then they have another guy coming up. The lefty that they've got in the big leagues, their 24-year-old Kyle Muller has made a couple starts this year. 
In the minor leagues this season, he at AAA Gwinnett made 23 starts at a 3 ERA, 159 Ks, 134 innings, 119 hits, 240 average against. There's no one in that system doing that, really. Jared Schuster, who I saw at the Futures game this year, lefty, same rotation, Gwinnett Stripers, 25th overall pick out of the ACC in 2020. He's got a 3 ERA at AAA, 136 innings, 143 strikeouts, 102 hits allowed, 206 average against. Where are these guys for me? Why do I have zero of them and they have all of them? Uh, They just drafted Owen Murphy, by the way, with the 20th pick this year uh, in Augusta. And he made five starts and in 12 innings struck out 17 batters with a 163 average against. We could just keep running through the system. But the point is, and I think people are getting it, uh, their competitive balance pick this year, the 35th pick in the draft, J.R. Ritchie, uh, also an A-ball. Same rotation as Owen Murphy. Five starts, a 180 RA, 14 innings, 14 strikeouts. Like They just have these dudes coming up all the time. And how are you supposed to compete with it? You don't spend money, and you're not even in the same ballpark as them when it comes to getting these guys to the show. Yeah, to, to go back through the Braves process a little bit, because I think it's instrumental in our discussion, it's, and it's, listen, they were a mid-90s win team, made the playoffs three out of four years. The year they didn't, they won 89 games. This is under Freddie Gonzalez not, not that long ago. But they knew they'd kind of maxed out. They were old. They, they needed to kind of reboot. They had four straight losing seasons. I don't think they bottomed out quite as badly as, as the Nationals have this year, but they won upper 60s ball games a couple times. And this was what they were going to do. They were going to reboot. They had to do a complete overhaul, reinvestment in the developmental process, the scouting process. I mean, it wasn't as if they were bad before. They get guys like, you know, Jason Hayward and Freddie Freeman and, you know, the kind of the cores of that really good team, that Atlanta team um, of the mid 2010s, I guess is what we're calling them. They knew they needed this big overhaul to really be able to compete as they are right now this minute. And their window, dude, is wide open. They also somehow convinced these young stars to sign for a fraction of what their market value will be down in the future. Quite literally the opposite of what the Nationals have or, or haven't done in that case. In Ozzy Albies, Ronald Acuna, etc. Austin, Austin Riley. Riley, too. Positioning themselves for not only competitiveness, but greatness for, you know, again, a, a decade or more. The Nationals are behind the eight ball in every single way when you start to line them up to teams like the Braves, teams like the Dodgers, et cetera. Now, these are the classes of of, of baseball. Everybody is envious of how these guys are doing it. But my point is it wasn't that long ago that the Nets were that. If you recall, the Mets, when uh, you know uh, their GM took over a handful of years ago, was like, yep, we're going to try to do it like they've done it in terms of pitching and sort of build around that and, and see what for. Now, the Nets are, are not only lagging behind, they're being lapped when it comes to player evaluation, development, getting guys from their own system to the big leagues. They would have more success in that regard had they not spun some of those guys for some of their you know championship attempts and runs. We understand that. The point is, the Braves, as you correctly pointed out, have an endless army. An endless army. And when they, and if they let Dansby Swanson go this year, they got a, a, a shortstop named Shoemake, a AAA, who's poised to take his spot if they don't want to overpay that guy. They're shrewdly run. They're really, 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 really deep and good. And the, the difference is not just the, the top guys, as you pointed out, the first-rounders. Where is my seventh-round story? Where is my tenth-rounder that, that, that was better than everybody thought and makes it up and, and helps? You know, the way they've gotten these kind of success stories have been Throw-ins to trades, guys like Tanner Roark, who were you know afterthoughts or whatever. They find a way to, to come here, blossom, give you way more productivity than you ever thought. But in terms of their own system doing that, 
it's they've been devoid of that GP for a long, long time, and now all of that is coming home to roost. Yeah, I mean, they've, you've already seen Vaughn Grissom play at the major league level, who I think will replace Dansby Swanson probably, who was their top prospect before he graduated the status. But forty games in, hitting about three hundred with an eight hundred OPS and five home runs. I mean, it's it's just crazy how well they do this, and uh, they should be commended for it. They should be applauded for it, as frustrating as it is as a Nats fan. Uh, but the 8 nothing loss, couple of particulars here. Another hit and on base two more times for Joey Manessis, hitting three twenty six with a nine forty two ops. I did the podcast solo and just kind of talked uh, to myself for 45 minutes last week, <laughs> and many of those minutes were about Joey Manessis. Um, there's not a whole lot left to say. Obviously, he's hitting 430 in his last seven games, 322 in his last 15, 331 in his last 30, and 326 in the almost now 200 at-bats since getting called up. So we're talking about now, Danny, nearly a third of a season for Joey Manessis. And if you extrapolate out the totals to 162, you know he'd be on pace to hit 40 or so home runs at the major league level. Absolutely awesome that he continues this role. The 30-year-old, the best story of the season for the Nats, and it's not close. Yeah, it really is neat. It's a breath of fresh air. And watching him go about it, it's it's been really, really impressive for a million reasons. You touched on the numbers. For a 30-year-old rookie, that's beyond cool. But the other part is teams are in the business of getting you out. They're not here to allow you to put up stats. This is the major leagues, dude, especially when we're talking about teams that are competitive, right? As you watch them take on the Braves, the Mets, the Phillies, and, and, and some of the good clubs that are trying to do some things. They're trying to get him out with stuff out of the zone. He's spitting on it, right? He's still hitting strikes. He's not trying to do too much. He's not, you know, I've experienced some success. I want to keep putting barrel to baseball. So then you kind of get out of your plan and teams can kind of get you out with those sliders that are strikes for 87% of the way to home plate then kind of, you know, dance off the outside, quite literally sliding off the table or that's the appearance. Fastballs up and out of the zone, chasing candy. He's been really disciplined. He's taken his walk still. He's not a ridiculous walk rate, walk rate guy. He's not going to be one-to-one like Pools in his prime or, or Juan Soto or something like that, but he's he's doing it. He, you know, I think he had uh, six or seven walks over his last 15 games. So he's, you know, two to one in terms of strikeout to walk. But that tells you everything. That tells you the story of, of how his at bats are going. People are pitching him carefully, and he's taking advantage when they do come in the zone. It's just amazing. He's got such a simple, excellent, quick swing. He's long through the ball, which, you know, gives you that backspin and that carry. This dude can hit. I have no idea if he could do a 162 like you just outlined, a 40-homer pace where he hits over 300 and is one of baseball's best hitters. I do know that these last few weeks have been a blast to watch that guy. I got he, His at-bats have now become, I'll be right there, honey, Joey's batting. Like, if I need to go do something, it's I, I'm, I'll wait one minute and watch his, the completion of his at-bat because it's that much fun. All right, let's talk C.J. Abrams, who finally got moved up in the order on game one of this series uh, on um, Monday night. To bat second, he went one for four. His average now is 240. His OPS is 601. But if you look at C.J. Abrams recently, he's really turned it around offensively. Last seven games hitting 320, and that's after the one for four. Uh, not a particularly loud seven games, right? Eight hits and, and just one run batted in. Uh, not a whole lot of power there. But hitting about 280 over his last 15 games, hitting about 265 over his last 30. OPS in that time, uh, close to... Uh, 700, so still not where you want it to be. He's not drawing walks, doesn't get on base, doesn't slug the ball necessarily. So there's still some growth here, but you're seeing more contact consistently. You're seeing 
I think, a better quality of at bat. Uh, His comical batting average balls in play, which we referenced on the show quite a bit as being unsustainable, is kind of correcting itself. And uh, because of that, he is getting on base more as his average climbs. Uh, But it's just good to see that he's really getting comfortable here in Washington. And I just think you you look at his body language or you see some of the video or or if you're at the ballpark, see how he interacts with guys during BP and you know, just out on the field during the game. It's very clear that I think he is kind of taken now to this shortstop spot. It's his. Yes, he's 21, but there's no parade back and forth to the minor leagues like may have happened in San Diego when they're trying to compete, you know, based on what they could get at the shortstop position at the deadline. It's his job, man, and he looks much more comfortable right now. Hitting over 300 in the month of September, as you as you touched on, OPS around 730, which for a guy without a ton of power is pretty damn good. I'll certainly take that. And you, you mentioned what he's doing at shortstop, and it's nice. It's stabilizing, and it feels good. I mean, that's kind of what you think of when you think of a shortstop. You know, it's the infield's captain. It's the leader. It's a, it's a dependable guy who's going to make a flashy play here and there. And for him, it seems to be almost every other night that he's doing it. Um, I, I ultimately... You know, watching this guy grow and watching this guy, you know, get more and more comfortable in his at bats. The the big thing for guys that hit left, especially cross-handed guys. So if you're a right-handed hitter that hits left, you just don't grow up seeing that many good left-handed pitchers. You just don't. They're the guys that can throw left-handed and are decent at all. Just get to keep going. I mean, again, it was so funny. I've, I've talked about this a million times, but. I had uh, the uh, the college team that I played on. Seven different guys ultimately got drafted off of off of those teams. Guys that were really really good players. Guys were you know top ten round picks, 11th, 12th round, really good minor leaguers. That you know sort of petered out. The guy that made it was pretty good for us, but I'd say probably our tenth or eleventh best player. And he pitched in the major leagues for multiple teams, including these Nationals. Mike O'Connor. He's left-handed. Weird delivery. Looks like an octopus falling out of a tree when he pitches. That guy gets to keep going. Good player, great career, right? Really, really cool. You just don't see that many of those kind of guys. He's really struggled against left-handed pitching. I mean, to to the tune, I think, of a of an average in the 160s at this point as this sample grows. The more he sees of quality left-handed pitching, I think the better for him. Just that supercomputer starts working. You, you make your adjustments. You figure out where your success is. He's way more comfortable against right-handed pitching, naturally, obviously, with that right-left uh, crossfire mac, uh, mix. But as lefties are able to get him out more and more and more, I think he'll start to make those kinds of comfort adjustments. You've seen him adjust to major league pitching slowly but surely, hit 160 in August, now again over 300 in September. As he gets his feet wet, as he adjusts, as he kind of gets acclimated to figure out where his success is, I think you're going to see more of this. I I'd, I'd, I'd almost like to see him bunt every now and again, again, especially against lefties. Maybe that drag bunt, if these guys are falling off the mound one way, you could push it towards third base. There's a number of things that I think he'll have in his toolkit as he continues to grow and runs a little bit more that I think we're going to be really, really impressed with. I don't know how much power there's going to be. I don't know about the walk rate, kind of as you alluded to. I don't think it's ever going to be great. He can be a hit-your-way-on kind of guy. But there's plenty of tools to be excited and really useful for this club. So a couple of things when you look into his batted ball profile for C.J. Abrams. Uh, He hits a little bit more ground ball than the average hitter in baseball, which I have no problem with Mm -hmm. because of his speed and he can beat some of those out. Um, Generally, you want people to hit the ball in the air because those turn into home runs more frequently. But in his case, with his current power and his speed, I think hitting the ball on the ground much more than he hits it in the air is probably fine. Uh, He does, though, when you look into the strength of contact, so to speak, uh, he he does struggle to to find the barrel. 
Uh, on average in Major League Baseball, barrel percentage right now is about 7%. For C.J. Abrams, he's at about 2.5%. So you want more of the barreled balls. His max exit velocity this year is almost 60th percentile, meaning— For a guy that size, that's incredible. Exactly. When he's got the—when uh, he does it, he can really hit the ball. I mean, that's a skill. I, I talk about this all the time. I can't go out there and just— improve my my exit velocity right there are big leaguers who are going to top out in the mid 90s or 100 for guys that are able to hit 120 off the bat your, your O'Neill Cruises and your Shohei Otanis and your Judges and Stantons like that's a real skill a separator for you know players like um, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and the fact that at his size he's able to be in, in a class with the top 10% of baseball is a really big deal but it's just not often enough that he's finding the barrel you look at barrel per plate appearance so you're just dividing the barrels by how many plate appearances you've had essentially or vice versa and in you know in the big leagues on average 4.6 for him 1.8 yeah. so that's something i'd like to see more of solid contact about 4% of the time the average hitter 6% of the time doesn't sound like a big deal but over the course of a season you know those numbers do add up and matter weak contact Contact percentage for him, about 7% of the time. The average player, below 4% of the time. So those are some things I'm interested in. I do love his approach. You know, you look at his spray chart. As a left-handed hitter, he's got more hits to left field than right field, which I guess can be indicative maybe of um, being behind on fastballs or some things like that. But I also think it's partially approach. It can also be approach, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you look at it, and the reason I assume it is approach, he does his best against fastballs. He's a 288 hitter uh, against fastballs this season, a 174 hitter against breaking balls, and a 208 hitter against changeups. So I just have to imagine that he handles fastballs pretty well, and, and that's more of an approach thing. So th- there are plenty of things to like about him at the plate as precursors for more to come. He's only 21 at the major league level, but just a little dive into some of the numbers on him. I like that a lot. I, I will say, speaking of kind of the, the skill sets that are separators, this is something that I believe, and some hitting coaches actually will, may disagree with this, but this is something I've always felt. I think it's a binary. Either you are put on this earth and you are able to hit velocity or not. And if not, you sit with your friend Grant Paulson and talk about baseball players that, that can, right? You it, it weeds you out very quickly. If you can't hit a ball that's traveling over a certain speed, there's almost very little you can ultimately do about it. You can put your hands mechanically and do all the best things you can, but if you can't catch up to a fastball just because you're not quick enough, fast enough, or strength enough, or strong enough, rather, whatever it is, then the it weeds you out. I think you can learn the other stuff. I think you can learn an approach that manages breaking balls, that manages change-ups, that manages off-speed better. Obviously, guys like to hit cheese, like to hit fastballs more often because they're more predictable, they're straighter, and and you can sort of time it up that way. Off-speed is meant to fool, is meant to get you off of your A-hack. I think you can learn those skills, and a guy that's 21 years old who probably should be a college junior right now learning at the major league level, I think that's going to take a little bit longer to come. But if you can hit fastballs, barrel up fastballs that are traveling 100 miles an hour, there's one billionth of one millionth percentile of people on this planet who can even make contact with that sort of thing that these guys see routinely every night. If you can do that, I think you've got the base to be a hitter. That's those are my that's my hmm. philosophical thought on that. I like it. Uh, Mason Thompson pitched in this loss to the Braves, this eight nothing shutout, and threw a one hit. One walk inning where he didn't give up any runs. Mason Thompson on the season at the major league level has a 2-4 ERA. 
So I just had a thought on him that I wanted to bounce off you. First of all, I, I like him as a piece for them moving forward. He came over from the Padres, who drafted him in the third round at one point in time, in the uh, Hudson deal last year. I do think Thompson will be a fixture in the bullpen over the next few seasons and could be a guy that throws in some high-leverage spots next year. Um, my interest in Mason Thompson is about his pitch selection. So he throws a lot of fastballs, as you'd imagine, right? He's a reliever. They come in. This is what they do. It's mostly fastballs, and, and then you have one breaking ball. But he throws fastball, slider, and almost nothing else. He's thrown, I think, three changeups all year, according to Baseball Savant. I wish he would throw more sliders. His slider's outstanding. His slider this year... Opponents hit 100 off of it, and the X batting average is only 113. 10 at bats, meaning 10 balls basically put in play against his slider, and one hit. I just wish he would throw that pitch more often. This is something you see in baseball more now than you used to, where guys like Rich Hill were always told, you got to establish your fastball, you got to establish your fastball, but your fastball sucks, and you have a great curveball. So you know what he did analytically is he said, why don't I throw my curveball more? And it kind of saves your career. We saw this with Patrick Corbin yeah. when he became an all-star and got $140 million bucks from the Nats. Why are you pitching off your fastball when your slider is so good? Pitch off your slider. Mason Thompson throws his fastball about 75% of the time and his slider about 23%, which is not nothing for the record. I'm just saying I'd like to see him throw more sliders. I think that's a damn good pitch for him. Closer to closer to maybe 65, 35, or even 60, 40. I didn't realize the disparity was that much. I mean, he's got some jump on his fastball. I'd be curious if you have the spin rate there. Um, uh, his, or, or, so his spin rate is not particularly good, actually. Really? Interestingly, because I was surprised to see that. I'll pull it up. I think he's right in the smack dab, like kind of middle of baseball in the 50th percentile. Or I would have guessed wrong on that because it, it feels like it's got life, right? As uh, you're, as you're kind of watching it. Fastball spin rate, 51st percent. Well, there you go. Because uh, it, it feels like, again, it's not it's not Sean Doolittle jump, but it feels like it. it Gets on hitters pretty quick, and they don't seem to be that comfortable against it. Well, more here, often here's than not. why maybe that is. So he's six six. Yep. His extension is eighty sixth percentile. Maybe there's so like maybe the, there it the is. The ball is being released. It feels like at home plate, like right? an like an octopus reaching out and dropping <laughs> it. Yeah, there, there's something to that. I, I you know, but you, you see this happen sometimes. A dude throws a hundred, and he's out there just feeding sliders, and sometimes gets himself into some bad ball counts, and you're going, dude, you throw a hundred. Mix that in. You know, Thompson's upper 90s, certainly with his fastball. So maybe he's erring on that other side of, of, of kind of the coin. But I'm with you. It's a pretty effective pitch. Um, and to me, it's all about making hitters uncomfortable, right? Just getting them off whatever it is that they're sitting on, getting them off whatever it is that you think they want to see. To me, I, I think pitchers more often should think like hitters. And what I mean is, if I'm sitting in the box, what do I want and what do I not want? More often than not, give them what they don't want. Give, give them the thing that makes them uncomfortable. There aren't many hitters that are going, oh, thank God, a slider, especially one down in the zone. Mix that in a little bit more. I'm with you. Yeah, I, I'd be uh, curious just to see what that looked like if, if he threw that pitch a little more often in the next season. 